Thank you for joining For Our Special Kids, where we openly and honestly discuss the magic and the mess of raising a child with special needs. We are thrilled to have you here and hope this time provides you with some wonder and wisdom. I'm your host, Jennifer Lansing. Let's get started. Hey, welcome back to part two of my interview with Rupert Isaacson. And just as a reminder, he wrote the book, The Horse Boy and The Long Ride Home. And that's what really inspired me to reach out to him and ask him for an interview. In today's episode, we get into neuroplasticity and BDNF, shamanism, the horse boy method and its evolution. Uh, Rupert will answer a couple of the listener questions and there's just a lot more in there. So I I'm glad that you were patient with me and logged back in to hear the second part of his story. We pop right into where he's talking about homeschooling and how he started learning things that were starting to develop the horse boy method, and then how he reached out to neuroscientists to learn more. So I love it that you've joined me. I hope you enjoy. And as always, let me know what you think. This time I had to kind of start homeschooling because the school, local schools, what they offered was you know not good so i started just adapting the national curriculum to be first being on the horse and then thinking well but these rhythms these rhythms that he's in these movements at the horse and what if i emulated them with swings or on my shoulders or on a trampoline and so it seems to be all about swinging the hips i found that if i did that i could pretty much transmit information in, including maths and things so this is really really interesting so then I went to neuroscientists to get a mentorship and said, please, can you explain what's going on? And I, I, I went to, back to Temple Grandin because she's also a neuroscientist, not just an animal um, behavioralist. And I also went to a guy called Dr. Robert Navio at the University of California, who runs the Mitochondrial Institute in San Diego, someone at the um, Sorbonne in France, at the Marie Curie Institute, and a couple of others. What was interesting is I got the same answer from all of them. They said, what you've done is purely by accident. You've stumbled into a way to switch off the cell danger response in the brain. That's the amygdala that Temple Grandin was talking about, which is the fight, flight, freeze part of the brain. It tells the body to produce a stress hormone called cortisol, which is designed to keep you alive. It's your dinosaur brain. It's like a pair of scissors, um, but it's a neurotoxin, kills brain cells cuts momentarily the cord between your conscious and your subconscious brain so that you act, you don't think, you're not, you don't start wondering what's for lunch, you know, while the elephant is coming at you. So this is okay, provided it only happens in short bursts, you know, when it's supposed to happen. But if it's happening all the time, well, you have no access to your frontal lobe. So the, the intellect is intact. What is presenting itself as an intellectual disability is not just the intellect's behind a locked door. And this cortisol is like a guard dog in front of this locked door, growling at you. And you can't get in. But it's a, this hip rocking thing that's happening on the horse, and then we were emulating it with other things, makes your body produce the antidote hormone to cortisol. And that's oxytocin. Oxytocin is the happiness and feel-good hormone, including physical feel-good. So it calms down that nervous system that's overacting, uh, pressing the amygdala. But it's also the communication hormone crazy so it tells it calms down the nervous system travels up through the vagal nerve to the brain tells the the amygdala hey enough already there is no elephant coming through the wall right now 
the amygdala goes, all right, then, and, and just stops producing cortisol. And suddenly that guard dog that was in front, you chucked it a steak. It comes for an ear scratch, rolls over, you know, shows its belly, and you walk in and you're in the intellect, you're in the prefrontal cortex. Then there's more. When you're up there on the horse, when you're on play equipment and that sort of thing, you are moving and problem solving. And when humans, all mammals actually, when we move and problem solve, our brain produces a protein. And this protein is called BDNF in neuroscience. And it stands for brain derived neurotrophic factor. In fact, it's, this is so important to know that I want every listener who's in a situation where they don't know what's going on with their kid, please just go and get a pen and I'm going to read it out to you again. <laughs> DNF, brain derived neurotrophic factor. Well, what does that mean? the brain producing more of its own brain cells, neurotrophic, neuro means brain cells, trophic means growing of, but produced by the brain. And this is, goes back to our hunter-gatherer uh, roots. When you hunt, it's very dangerous. You've got to be on high alert the whole time. When you gather, it's very dangerous. You've got to be on high alert the whole time because things are hunting you. And also if you make every, every edible plant has a, has a toxic doppelganger. And if you make the wrong decision, you kill your whole family in one night. So we, our brains have evolved to put us at maximal cognitive capacity when we move and problem solve. Among these many trillions of cells that you produce, this is of interest if you are, have neuropsychiatric stuff, is cell series called, with a funny name, they sound like, they sound like Pokemon characters, Perkinji cells. Perkinji, they sound like these floppy, uh, things with big floppy ears and a lolling tongue or something bouncing about. But Purkinje was a Czech scientist in the 19th century who discovered these neurons. And they're very big because they had to be because otherwise his, his crude equipment couldn't have picked them up. And the Purkinje cells, which are produced in your cerebellum, govern motor skills and crucially social skills. And they also act like an internet within the brain that get all the different parts of the brain talking with each other. We don't know why, but autopsies on adult autists have often shown a deficit of Purkinje cells. Overactive amygdala, too much cortisol, deficit of Purkinje cells. Okay, so sudden, and, and this oversensitive nervous system. So suddenly you've flooded this person with the feel-good communication hormone that shuts off the cortisol, gets the access to the prefrontal cortex, then effectively starts growing a whole new brain, neurotrophic factor, neuroplasticity. BDNF is neuroplasticity. Among these uh, scads of, of uh, brain cells that are being produced are these ones that govern social skills along with the communication. And so that's why you see sometimes what appear to be rather miraculous changes happening quite quickly. And so when we realized this, we thought, oh, gosh, all right, we could replicate this. It's not just Rana. And so something called horse boy method was born where we started doing this as a equine therapy. And, there, and we still do. But I realized rather quickly, 95% of the time, the kid's not on the horse. Most kids will never have access to horses. What I was doing, emulating those movements with play equipment and so on, was also working. So we, we started something called Movement Method, initially as a homeschool program and sort of home therapy program. But then schools got started using it in their special needs programs and then realized that it might also work very well on normal kids, neurotypical kids. And so now that's in schools, you know, in many countries, sort of gathering pace. And then we have another way of delivering it for adults with trauma that we call Athena 
um, which is non-mounted work with horses. Over the years, it's sort of morphed into these three things, horse boy method, movement method, and Athena. And it's interesting work, but it's basically delivering neuroplasticity and happiness. Thanks. It's good stuff. We're lucky to have stumbled into it. But like I say, I've been mentored by my son. He was the person all through those early years who really showed me what worked and what didn't. And now that he's 20 and just starting college, <laughs> has his own house and his own car and talks very articulately about all this and now helps me when I'm doing trainings. He, he's going to fly to Ireland next month and meet me there to do some trainings for some schools there because he can answer, like Temple, he can answer people's questions about what, what is it to be autistic from the inside. Right. It all comes down to mentorship. None of this would have happened if I hadn't gone looking for mentorship. None of it's my idea, basically. Mm. I was, as you were talking, God, sorry. Well done not to answer a couple of my questions, but good job. <laughs> oh, you want me to talk about shamanism? No, right? don't even. Well, uh, maybe okay, you can pop on again. No, no, no. You have, you have things to do. Maybe we'll find some other time to talk. More I can tell you very about. quickly how shamanism works. I mean, it, it's love, but with a certain training process, it can be directed. I am not a shaman. To be a real shaman, you, you have to go through some decades of, mm. of training within, within a culture where the tradition is unbroken. You know, our, our problem in, in the West is that we put them all to death during the witch burning uh, yeah, we did. centuries mm. and we sort of ran out of that technology. But we do understand that doctors with good bedside manner, their patients tend to get better. Eminent surgeons who are assholes tend to kill their patients. And actually, this is rather interesting. When I made, we didn't just write a book we, we, of the Mongolian journey, where, of course, we were going from healer to healer on horseback because I had had all this exposure to this type of healing in Africa. Um, and then healing had come through a horse. So I thought, well, where is a place on the world that combines those two things? That's not Africa because Africa is not a horse culture. Where's the horse come from? Mongolia. Oh, yeah, it's a strong shamanic culture there. Okay, gut feeling, got to go there. So we went. And indeed, it was, you know, quite ex extraordinary what happened there. But the shamans themselves will tell you that what they're doing is using a sort of universal human love in a very directed way that does, you know, trigger the immune system and triggers it. And so when we made the film, my uncle talked to me about it. And my uncle was Peter Isaacson. You can look up Dr. Peter Isaacson. He was head of pathology at University College Hospital, eminent research doctor, and not always a terribly nice man. And certainly if he, if he thought that you were full of it, he would throw it at you. And so I expected that to happen after he saw the film. We had a little private viewing for the family. And so I went up to him and I opened an imaginary umbrella held it over my head, go on, take a shit, do your worst. You know, surfs up, <laughs> both barrels. And he said, actually, Rupert, this time I'm not going to take a shit. And I said, well, that's unlike you. Uh, why not? And he said, well, a couple of reasons. Um, remember, this is 15 years ago. He says, well, A, you've, you're, you've come up with a piece of work that's saying maybe autism actually could be a good thing. This is, this is interesting. He said, the other thing that you, you've done is you, you've talked about in an interesting way about the placebo effect. And I said, well, what do you mean by that? And he said, well, Rupert, most people don't understand the placebo effect. Most people think that the placebo effect is a way of dismissing something. Oh, that's just the placebo effect. So it means they fundamentally misunderstand 
what the placebo effect is. He says, I'm a pathologist. I'm a research doctor who looks at clinical trials of the drugs that will go out onto the market. And I'm part of the approval processes and the peer review groups that, you know, look at these studies and so on. And he said, you know, all Western medicine is based on, on drugs, which are really based on plant products, which are based on natural medicines from the past. He said, any drug trial has a control group where they get a placebo. So many people get better off the placebo that the drug has to make more people better than the placebo does. And he said, and Rupert, it's not that these people think that they get better and then go off and die later. They actually get better. We, we follow up, we follow up over years. And something is triggered through this autoimmune suggestion. And um, this, it seems that these cultures have perfected a technology for this over you know, millennia that we ourselves still use. That is really the basis of Western medicine, even. He said most people don't really realize that. They think that science is something outside of that, but it's actually not. So I said, well, that's interesting. Um, so then we all went off and had a drink together. It's certainly what you, you started this conversation by talking about intuition. Intuition, again, is, is, is tied to all this. Where I think I'm a bit lucky is that I'm a, I'm a colonial product. So my mum is South African. My father is Zimbabwean. My mum's family were out in South Africa from the earliest, from the 1700s. My father's family in Zimbabwe, Namibia, you know, later from the late 1900s, um, Jews that were running away from pogroms in uh, Lithuania on my mother's side, you know, Scots, Irish, English, ne'er-do-wells, you know, who went out there. And if they didn't die of fever or get eaten by lions or killed by the Zulus, you know, then they would sort of make it and survive. And so the idea of trusting your intuition and listening to your intuition is very much a part of that upbringing. Because if you are walking through the bush and you have a feeling about something, it means there's probably something there. Like, and I, I know this myself, if I have, if I'm walking through the bush and I have a, a thought snake, I know there's one there. I know there's one there. And normally I will see it at a certain point. And I know that I must tread carefully. And why would you not listen to that? If I'm on a horse and I get a feeling that I should get off that horse, I get off that horse. If I get a feeling I shouldn't get on that horse, I don't get on that horse. Might get on him tomorrow, but not today. You're in a, a bar and you might speak three languages, but the language that those guys over there are speaking, you don't know. And they're sort of looking at you. You don't know whether they mean you ill or not, but it's Africa. So the stakes can be high. You've got to go with your gut feeling. To always rely on the intellect is not enough. It, it, you're hampered. It's like well, going around on one leg. You, you, you've, the, life is always 50% rational and 50% irrational. Always, no exceptions. We all know this. We fall in love. We can't explain it. But everyone has that experience. We all dream. We all have psychotic episodes sometimes. We all sometimes seem to have these you know, weird breakthroughs. We, we sometimes have ecstatic experiences. None of these things are rational, but they're very real. And they are what we actually live for. It's what our, where our greatest happiness is. We, we want to dwell in the happy irrational most of the time. That's, what, that's bliss, actually. One, of course, needs both for the, for the whole life. So, you know, intuition, um, shamanism, placebo effect, Western medicine, none of these things are in contradiction with each other. They are all part of the same whole. 
just, I'm just laughing. Like you just look back as you were talking and you're very articulate. So it's, it's fun to just listen. I've been having a nice time just listening and I'm sure other people are as well. Uh, it is really fun to look at how much maybe not in the beginning, perfect puzzle pieces of your life have really come together to just create a beautiful, a beautiful story. And every person that is interacting with you or interacting with those people that you have taught or trained or mentored, everyone is benefiting. And it's a really beautiful thing to just hear you talk and talk about how all those things have lined up when maybe when it was happening, you didn't know that it would line up. No, no, we didn't. <laughs> you got to take a risk. Yeah, um, and you did. But, and we're lucky. We're lucky that this thing gives joy and gives solutions, practical solutions too. Mm -hmm. Like you can't learn math. Now you can learn math. These are good life skills to have. But at the same time, yeah, what lies at the center of it is um, follow the child. Follow the child. Follow the child. And the child is also you. You are also the child. You're in a child. You know, what is your bliss? What are your dreams? Because if it's not, if the process of trying to follow your child's dreams is not also following your dreams, it's not sustainable, you'll run out of gas. So you have to find ways in which your own obsessive interests, like me, I like horses, dovetail in with those of the person you're trying to serve. And if you can then put the thing that you love into the service of the dreams of that more vulnerable person, then your dreams begin to come true. That's another shamanic process. Sometimes you have to have a bit of faith. Sometimes it doesn't seem like it for a while. <laughs> um, and then you need a good friend and a good IPA. That's why your blog exists. Because we always get, we special needs parents, always get our best information from other parents. Always, always, always. Yeah. Because the, the parent has not, is not trying to sell a thing. I mean, we do now make money from the methods but that's not why they began i was busy being a writer and a horse trainer and i still am they were not created for that reason um they were created because they were helpful and they've caught on because people find them helpful but the primary motivation is always the sharing of information and the trying to give someone else another hand up on the wall that you might have been able to clamber up on yourself and when we decided to make the methods available, I remember having that thought, thinking, well, you know, I could just live quietly over here. It will be a lot less hassle, I know. But then I thought, if I do that, I'm an asshole because then, you know, I'm not making available this thing that I stumbled into, which has helped me. If I don't help the other people who are in my position, then no, one has to. There's an obligation there. It's, it's very, very fulfilling. Yeah. Yeah. But just like what you're doing with this blog, I'm sure it's very fulfilling. And you're finding the solutions, Jen, you know, that you need for your for, for Teal through this. And you're you're setting up a structure for her. A business will probably come out of this that will be hers, that she will have or not have as she gets older, depending on whether she wants to. But you will set this up for her. And this this these information exchanges and who knows, some really interesting method might come out of this quite likely to actually and i'll be very interested to check in with you over the years and see how it's going because i always want to know what good stuff people are up to um tell tell parents oh yeah look there's this 
lady over there with this teal, she's doing this, da, 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 seems to be working. Check her out. Go talk to her. See if she's got some mentorship for you. And you would, you'd help them. Yeah. Well, you, this conversation has completely inspired me. Uh, it's it, just to really dive in more as you were talking about how much you followed your intuition and you followed Rowan's lead and, and all of that. It was just a, a huge eye opener for me of, I just have to do it even more as much as I listen to her. And as much as I feel her and I open my heart and I try my best to follow her lead, whew, you just have really inspired me to just take it a step further again and be gentle with myself at the same time. So I asked my listeners what was one or two questions that they had for you. So one was, she said, you know, I've watched the movie, but I haven't read the book. When you were traveling with your wife and Rowan, what were you expecting when you went into Mongolia? So this is very horse boy focused. My intuition told me it will work. My intellect said, I have no idea if this will work. And I had to learn to tread a line between attachment and non-attachment. And Mongolia is a good place to do that because it's an intact ecosystem. So when you're traveling through it, it's so amazing, you know, that you're like, well, listen, <laughs> if nothing happens, at least, at least, um, you know, the diagnosis of autism didn't prevent us from having an incredible adventure together as a family like this. Yeah. Cool. I also have another question. How has your relationship with horses changed since your voyage into Mongolia? Out of all recognition, um, I was a horse trainer that was sort of semi, it was pretty good, pretty average, but that's not a bad thing. When I realized that collection was the key, if you're a horse person, you know what I mean by collection was the key to the oxytocin and therefore the communication. I realized I needed to learn more about collection, which is dressage. So I went and apprenticed mentorship again um, with a man called Luis Valenza in Portugal, who is probably, he's, he's, he's regarded across the board in the horse world as probably the greatest living exponent of classical dressage currently alive on the planet today. Within about, a year of working with him, it so transformed my horsemanship that I was producing what's called FEI level horses out of my backyard therapy horses, horses that could basically do a Grand Prix dressage test within a couple of years. And because of that, organically, I began to get known as a, as a dressage trainer. And now I travel the world, I train international riders and their horses and and they also come to my stable here in germany but that was a real surprise to me <laughs> i had no idea that that would happen but it did so it it broadened and deepened and allowed me to find a, a certain mastery of the thing that i have the biggest passion for and i'll be forever grateful for that well you clearly and beautifully articulate your story in both of the books, The Horse Boy and The Long Ride Home. It's an honor to speak with you. Thank you so very much for spending time with me. And I do have one final question for you, which is what is one word that you would use to describe a child with special needs? A child. 
Mm. Yeah. That's beautiful. And what is a child? What is your child? Your child is your heart walking around outside your body. Yeah. <laughs> All right. That's a special heart. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you. The honor's all mine. Thank you so much for joining us today. I hope you found one or two meaningful nuggets of information to make your day better. If you think there's value in what we do, please take a moment to tell another friend, family member, or a caregiver. We'd love to hear from you at forourspecialkids at gmail.com. You can send in a question, a comment, a topic that you'd like to learn more about, or if you'd like us to highlight a certain person, please send that information to us. It makes our show so much better and so much more valuable for you. Our Facebook and Instagram handle is for our special kids. And finally, remember to witness the wonder and the wisdom within yourself and others. Until next time.